welcome to 80s Music Exposed, the podcast in which we review all the best albums of the 80s, one month at a time. We will break them down, give you the skinny, and duke it out over whether or not you should dig these out again. So, if you're ready for an 80s music deep dive from Aha to Wham, Bowie to XTC, Madonna, Hair Metal, New Wave, and all points in between, then crank the boombox, turn your Walkman up to 10, and let's go! Welcome to 80s Music Exposed. I'm Henry. And I'm Chris. And I'm Megan. Kid tested, mother approved. Oh, I like that. You you didn't say something about how long it's been, even though it's been a long fucking time, and then you had a little catchphrase. You need to cut that part out, right? No. <laughs> Keep that. That was nice. I don't know where it's from. I know it's from something, but that was fun. I don't know. It's either. I remember hearing it on TV. Kids. Kid tested, mother approved. What was the one you told me the other night? He called me out of the blue the other night and did the one from the guy from the paper chase. Uh, oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, man. If you had asked me any other time, I could have remembered it. Okay, so um, we were just talking off air about how old we are compared to Megan and how young she is, but the paper chase was this show in the 80s about being a lawyer or being in law school. Smith Bond. We Bond don't. What is it? We don't what? God damn it. Smith Barney. They make money the old-fashioned way. They earn it. Yeah, you are 50. You mentioned yep, see, this is, this is exactly what happened. Bond commercial and then that back-to-back. Well, welcome to 80s Music Exposed. Sure. We review records here, Yes, we do. Right? Surely. And, you know... What else do we do? Well, I wanted to say one thing, Henry. Uh, sometimes I like to go back at the first of the episode and kind of recap some stuff that I might have missed from the episodes before. Okay. And since we cover records, I thought this would be a good time to talk about... I have a list that I call Chris's 80s canon. Right. Mm-hmm. And what I do is, like, as we go along, I just kind of pick up the uh, records that I think if at the end of our show... And by the way, I've calculated, Megan, I think by the end of our show, Henry and I will both be 58... And you will be 27. And so... (laughs) That was a joke? That was a joke. (laughs) No, but so, yeah. So when we get to the end, this would be the list. Like, if you didn't want to listen to all our shows, which is kind of weird that I'm saying this, and you just wanted to, like, get the the, the definitive list... Yeah, the canon. I'm trying to to put the canon. Mm -hmm. So I think the last one I mentioned was Police Synchronicity. I've added uh, three albums since then. I just wanted to... Name them. Now I have to update the spreadsheet. You do, okay. you do, and I and I and I I didn't know if you were doing I think that. I definitely know power, corruption, and lies. Yes, power, corruption, and lies. Um, one that we're doing today, so I'm going to leave that as a teaser. And then the other one, I really think Eliminator by ZZ Top needs to be on that list. And again, this this canon list is not necessarily stuff I love. It's just like if you want the full '80s experience, I don't think you can you can't eliminate Eliminator. Well, I shall enter it into the scroll. Scroll. I, I remember you mentioning the grand canonical scroll. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't know we had a scroll. It has to be written in blood. Are we playing Dungeons and Dragons later? <laughs> right. I'm not nerds. Okay. And entered into the eighties canon. <laughs> Chris <laughs> has declared. Dun, 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 dun. top <laughs> to be therefore listed. Oh, God. Okay. Forsooth and forswear. 
I always feel like you don't necessarily love my canon choices, but I do know you love this next uh, segment that we do, and I just added it uh, recently. And it's oh, called shit. <laughs> Henry Sings the Billboard Top 100 Top 5 Singles from whatever month. And this month we're okay. covering is June of 1983. Okay. So I'm going to hit you with the title. And, and Megan, if you would rather sing it just and you want one, just... You just grab it. Just Yeah, just buzz in. You know, I'm not going to steal Henry's shine. Okay. I would... Yeah, he loves this. Okay. One of these, I'm not sure, I guess. The okay. first one is a song called Flashdance by Irene Cara. Was it called Flashdance or was it called... It was called Flashdance. What a feeling. Something believe. Something comes alive. It does get me pumped, though. Like, me too. As the song is what when you're driving. And can I just say fun. this, guys? Because we were talking about this before on this top five list. Flashdance was all four weeks of June 1983 at number one. That's insane. Yeah, is, there's a connection to one of the artists today. Oh, is there? This. I'm going to mention okay, cool. Yes. But that was pretty uh, amazing to me because even the Michael Jackson uh, stuff that we just went through, mm-hmm. Beat It didn't last four straight weeks in one, so that's pretty amazing. Uh, the second song, Henry, is by David Bowie. It's called Let's Dance. Let's dance. Put on your red shoes and dance the blues. Yeah. No, no, no. Pretty good. There's also a connection with this episode to that song as well. I'll mention it when we get there. Okay. Uh, How about the next one? It is a song called, Megan, you may want to jump in on this one, Time by the Culture Club. Why? Why why would I want to jump in? I just wanted to hear you sing. I don't even, like, that's not one In time, it could have been so much more, because time is precious, I know. Right. Well, you're trying to do that little trill in your voice, like, boy, aren't you? I don't know if I've ever heard that. Really? You don't know if you've heard that Time one. won't give me What's time. That that time covered? makes lovers feel like they got something real. Anything? Anything? You and me. No, no not that she's got enough. You don't know that song? It's gone from, from my memory. I know I've listened to that album before, the album right. that it's on. But, like, I just don't remember that at all. All right, homework, homework. All right, the next one, number four, is Electric Avenue by Eddie Grant. We gonna rock down to Electric Avenue, and then we take it higher. I think that's actually I all the lyrics. The part with my mouth. <laughs> I, know, I have to do the lick. Why are you always, I just said sing. I, I didn't say like you have to. It doesn't make any sense. Like the rest of it, unless you do the lick with the mouth part. All right, and number five is uh, Every Breath You Take by the Police. Every breath you take, every move you make, every bond you break, every step you take. That was... Uh, <laughs> Who's really covering oh my God, that? I, I don't know. Is that, a cover? is that a cover? I don't know. I guy? like imagining Sting as like a redneck. Everybody should cover it like that. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you, thank you. Yeah, um, Henry, also, I think you uh, have a, a little um, treat yes, for I us. Do. Some, some listener mail. On the 80s exposed microphone, I have a piece of mail. <laughs> So this is called Feedback in Nebraska Anecdote by a new Patreon subscriber, a material girl subscriber, who writes us, Ken Stuckey. He says, I'll try to make this very quick because I don't know how much email you guys get, but I wanted to say... Tons. Tons. We get tons. We picked yours right out of a hat, Ken. I just wanted to say how much I'm enjoying the podcast. I'm binging it like crazy to the point... 
when uh, where when I finally get caught up, I'm going to be at a loss. I also just became an official material girl. Wait till I tell my friends. <laughs> I'm writing here instead of Patreon because I have a long anecdote that I think you will appreciate in light of your Nebraska episode, which I just listened to. I did, still have a ways to go. Did Ken say long anecdote? Mm-hmm. Hmm? <laughs> Ken say he had a long anecdote? Yeah. Okay. Uh, All right. Go uh, ahead. Yeah. Yeah. He had, Yes, a long anecdote. In July of 1985, the weekend of my 13th birthday and also the weekend of Live Aid, that puts him like right at our age, I guess, or a little bit older. Sure. I would be 12. He would be 13. So he's a year older than us. And also the weekend of Live Aid. My parents took my brother and me on a road trip to New York City. While there, a New Jersey radio station decided to do a weekend-long tribute to Springsteen. I ran to the store, bought some audio cassettes. It's going out on a limb for a New Jersey radio station. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, like while I was in New York and recorded hours of the broadcast to listen to later. When I got back home, South Carolina, I played the tapes back and I discovered this haunting song that the DJ never identified. I was dying to get the whole album. Sometime later, my mom took me to the record store. I think it was Musicland, lowercase m. And I described the song to the employee and asked what album he thought it was. He said it sounded like it might be Nebraska. I bought Nebraska, played it end to end, and couldn't find the song. My mom took me back to the store, and I told them what happened, and they agreed to let me try one more time, so I exchanged Nebraska for darkness on the edge of town. Big mistake. Big mistake. (laughs) He goes, so many things about that fascinate me. I know. He says, one is that I unknowingly traded down. (laughs) Yep. Yep. I traded down. Nebraska. (laughs) uh, Nebraska is a much better album, but it probably took me 10 years to buy it again. Two, as frustrating as it was to hunt for a song and not be able to find it, those kinds of treasure hunts made music more special than it is now. I agree with that. I agree with that part. Did, was it on? Was it on Darkness at the Edge of Town? Shazam would have solved the mystery in ten seconds, but uh, would I then remember that discovery thirty-five years later? No. And three, I wish I could go back and thank that first sales clerk. He was as right as it was possible to be. The song was not an album track. It took me so many years to find it that I don't even remember how the mystery was finally solved, but the song is Shut Out the Light, recorded around the same time as the Nebraska Sessions, and released only as a B-side to the Born in the USA single. That's probably why I heard it. He was staring at the ceiling, he couldn't move his hands. Oh, mama, 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 come I got the shakes and I'm gonna be sick Throw your arms around me in the cold dark night Hey now, mama, don't shut out the light Don't you 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 shut out the light, you shut out the light. Well, on his porch he stretched a banner That said, John well, yeah, it just shows you before the internet, right? I mean, like right. how much harder it was, but in a way, it kind of like makes it more worthwhile because you discover or potentially discover other things, just like well, along the way. Also, I've got a hot, I've got a hot tip for Ken. What? Um, go easy on the binge listening. You're going to get caught up and be sick 
sick the fucking death of us, and right. then you're not going to finish. We've got a long road to hoe here. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're going to hit the. What happens is you're going to hit the wall. Well, Take a break. Like, it's going to be like a month. Yeah, go on vacation. Listen to Nebraska. Forget about us. You'll just think, like chill you'll think out. We've died. Yeah, yeah. Just just Pace relax yourself, a little bit. Ken. Pace yourself. We've got years to go here. And so, we re- um, but Ken, we really appreciate we your letter. Jobs. Yeah, we all have jobs. Thanks to Ken. Yes, thank you, Ken. We really yeah. appreciate your support yeah. and all of our other Patreon subscribers. Yes, for sure. We're going to go to significant events, which we cover every every episode for the month to get people in the mood. Henry, why don't you tell us uh, the first significant event from June 1983? The famous slash most popular red box Dungeons and Dragons set was released. The uh, I guess this is big news to somebody. Was, did you play Dungeons and Dragons? I sure did. I played a lot of it. What is the difference? With, okay, the 83 revision was packaged in a distinctive red box. Everything else is the same? Uh, so here's the thing. Box. So here's the thing. The red box uh, featured the art of Larry Elmore. Larry uh-huh. Elmore is the definitive TSR Dungeons and Dragons artist. TSR is the company. That the company. And so right. I had this game, which was I had this game, which was the science fiction version of Dungeons and Dragons called Star Frontiers. And to this day, I can. I looked at it. the cover of that. Is like I used to just sit in my room and look at the cover of that fucking. <laughs> box <laughs> and uh anyway so that was larry elmore's artwork so if you look up online at larry elmore all of his uh cartoon stuff is basically what dungeons and dragons came from but the red box henry was the box that like exploded into like that's when dungeons and dragons became like a rubik's cube right like they right, made right. cartoons saturday morning cartoons Conan the barbarian happened all the all the fantasy stuff started happening and the red box was a big, a big part of that. I made you read that, but I know you'd have no fucking clue what I was talking about. Because <laughs> you, I don't know anything about Dungeons and Dragons either. So. Yeah, and as big a I nerd as I was, decided dice. I did hear that Henry was even a bigger nerd, so he didn't even. He was like two levels deeper. Super nerd than Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> um, Sally Ride became the first U.S. woman in space. This is weird that I'm reading the space one and you right. read the nerd one. Right? Why did you? You just did that to just flip <laughs> things around. Yep, yep. So I get confused. Did Sally ride? Is she? Did she blow up in space, or did she? Uh, no, 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 she did. She no, did not. She did not. Uh, she died not too long ago, though. Mm. Um, but not in space. But just of natural causes. She died like on Earth, right? You're thinking about Krista McAuliffe, yes, Challenger. yes, yeah. yes. I am different lady. Different lady. Okay, so those are the significant events for June of 1983. Why don't we go ahead and cover some records? Let's get it. All right. The first one we're going to cover is the connection to David Bowie from the opening segment because the guitar solos on Let's Dance are done by this gentleman. His name is Stevie Ray Vaughn. The album is called Texas Flood. It's an all-music five-star record, a Rolling Stone three-star record. It had two sort of hits. I don't know if they were... Uh, top 20 or anything like that but one was called love struck baby and the other was called pride and joy and this is pride and joy you mess with her you see a man get me she's my sweet little thing she's my pride and joy she's my sweet little baby i'm a little lover boy
It's his debut album. It is right? his debut album. That's correct. And um, so I'm, there's a lot of interesting tidbits about this album and about Stevie Ray Vaughan um, at the time. The most interesting one for me was that Jackson Brown kind of discovered him. Jackson I, Brown? Yes. Really? At the Montreux Jazz Festival. I didn't know that. And invited him to record at his studio. And believe it or not, the Texas Flood was recorded over on the tape, recorded over Lawyers in Love Masters. Why did that happen? So they got to the studio. No, they got to the studio, and they did not have enough money uh, to buy tape. And I, and I know you can appreciate this back in the day when we were yeah. trying to do stuff. And Jackson Brown said, fuck it. Um, he thought he'd discovered the next Jimi Hendrix, and he was like, just just record over this. Huh. Yeah. That's cool. It was a really cool so story. I, would, yeah. I always understood the David. Why did I think David Bowie found this guy? Well, so uh, Jackson Brown discovered him, but this is interesting. Around the same time as when Bowie uh, heard him. Okay. And I, I don't know if there was a connection between Jackson. This is my favorite Stevie Ray Vaughan story. So David Bowie called him up and, of course, was like, do you want to play on my album? And he was like, I don't know who you are first. He's like, I don't, I don't know who you are, but if you want to pay me, I'll, I'll play on your record. And then he went to He didn't pl- know who David Bowie was. He did not was. know who David Bowie was. And he went and he showed up and he played and David Bowie was like, you know, you're amazing. This is great. We're going to, you know, we're gonna, these are, he did, by the way, he did all the guitar for that David Bowie record in two days. And then, yeah. And so Bowie said, let's go on tour. And Stevie Ray Vaughan said, how much are you going to pay me? And apparently he didn't say a figure high enough. And Stevie Ray Vaughan said, nope. So the video for Let's Dance where, you know, Bowie's playing the guitar with the white gloves on. Yeah. They were going to shoot Stevie Ray Vaughan for that video. And Bowie was so pissed that he wouldn't go on the tour with him. He said, fuck off. I'll, I'll. Do I'll, the I'll, I'll do the yeah the video I'll ape it the video yeah because and and anybody that's like a Bowie nerd like me knows up to this point Bowie always had hot shot guitar players right he always had like his cream pick of the you know litter and yeah. Stevie Ray Vaughan just well and it, and apparently everything I read in his biog- biography and stuff Stevie Ray Vaughan was totally not being a dick he just didn't know who he was and he yeah. was so into blues music he was just like I I didn't know the guy was hot shit and all that so. I thought that was hilarious, though. Like, he just didn't know. Well, it's, I mean, that's interesting because I would say, like, I don't even like blues music per se that much. Like, my only contact with the blues had been, like, uh, bar band stuff. But he transcended that. He was more than just a guitar player, you know? Like, it, he, I read a quote one time where Stevie Ray Vaughan said that he thought that Hendrix played actual music, didn't play a guitar, you know? But I feel like he was really talking about himself. You know, it, it, it was about the way that he played. Stevie Ray Vaughan was like reeked of authenticity, you know? It just, it just came off of him in waves. He seems like he would be the type of person, because I didn't really know that much about him, but mm-hmm. like he's the real deal. Yeah, it was the way he was fed the blues. So he could play like, this is the way Albert King would do it. Right. And then he would say, okay, this is the way Eric Clapton would do it. A lot more articulated. Right. Right. And then he would do something else, which is not just the feel of an Albert King, but included the articulation of Eric Clapton right. as well. So he's kind of equally influenced by those blues, the English blues player guys, as much as the real deal blues guys, right? Right. 
Yeah, um, it's really it's really weird. I, something else I didn't know about this record, and, and in particular, I really like this record, by the way. Yeah, me too. Uh, it was recorded in two days with no overdub. Come on, man. No overdub. I mean... And I, if you listen to his band with Double Trouble, there's just two dudes, just a bass player and a drummer. They're fucking amazing, too. Like, they didn't do any overdubs on this thing. They just recorded the shit. I can't imagine. You go and you listen to Dirty Pool... Right, listen to the chord structures on that thing, and all the syncopation that you got in the low rumble that he's that you've got to have in um, tracks on this thing, like Rude Mood. Right, I mean, it's deceptive. It's a total. I mean, that one Rude Mood song is a total swing guitar workout thing. Dirty Pool is almost like shoegaze. I mean, it's so fast the chord delivery. I mean, what did you think, Megan? Did you kind of catch that too? I mean, I liked this album more than I thought I would. Mainly, like I said, I was kind of going in not knowing much of anything about Stevie Ray Vaughan because I feel like because he died, like he's that also adds to the mystery Mm -hmm. that he's like steeped in a little bit. So, so I was expecting more country, I guess. Were you really? Yeah, I mean that's more just because of my ignorance of yeah yeah you know, never listened to him before so it's bluesy but also kind of like you said like some of it is psychedelic but that's kind of the wrong word for it I don't know it's hard to describe it's just no it kind of is because he's such a Hendrix fan too so there is that sixties psychedelic kind of mixed mixed in kind of thing yeah and I wasn't expecting that like at all the fan on. Uh, a helicopter crash. Okay. And it was just like a Buddy Holly thing. Like he, it was after a show and he wasn't supposed to be on the helicopter and he got uh, offered to be on it, to get on it. And uh, he just made an album with his older brother who was in the fabulous Thunderbirds, another great guitar player. And he'd gotten clean and sober, got off heroin and had done the tour. Like, and you know, he was in that phase of like clean living where it was like, being clean's great, you know. The new high. Yeah, he was like high on <laughs> on that and starting a new chapter and everything and kind of sucked. But uh, t- uh, the basis for Double Trouble, Tommy Shannon says about the sessions, he said it was really just a big warehouse that Jackson Brown owned with concrete floors and some rugs thrown down. We just found a corner set up in a circle, looked at each other, and knocked it out. I guess if you saw the guy play, you would offer him a record contract on the spot, and, and that's just... They just put that on tape. Anyway, true badass. Love this record. I particularly like Dirty Pool a lot. Yeah, I have nothing but good things to say about this record, and I I think he's got a couple more good ones um, coming up, so I look forward to those. All right, so the next record we're going to cover, Henry, why don't you lead us in? This is, I finally got a chance to work the church into into here. That's the first I noticed that. I, 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 big influence on me growing up, but the record we're going to consider is the church's, their third album called Seance, and the, we're going to play part of a song called Electric Lash. The electric Lash of trees in the studio fills my head
so good. Uh, would you call this neo psychedelic music? Hmm. They're not quite dream pop yet. All right. So for those that don't know, the Church are the is are the band is the band. The Church is the band that did a big hit called uh, Under the Milky Way. Right. Mm-hmm. This they're not there yet. This is album number three. Electric Lash is a standout track on this album. Um, I don't think you could call them dream pop yet, but this is kind of leaning in that direction when you see this song anyway. I think so, definitely. I think the church benefited greatly from, uh, you know, they had been on, they started out on a major label. They are on EMI in, in Australia and were eventually on Warner Brothers. They get they had chances and chances and chances to do records. But but their big breakout was with Arista when they got when the LA producers got a hold of them. And I think they finally got these guys to see, hey, this is what you are. You are this. You need to lean into this. A record like this, Seance is to me, it's You'd almost call it bipolar. It's it's kind of all over the map. It goes up and down, yeah. and it can't. The church has yet to decide what kind of band they really are, and it's this re- weird, rare circumstance where I can say your first records are great. There's lots of little things in there, but you didn't really find who you are until we had had a real pro get you in the studio. You know? Yeah, so um, it's weird. I, I, I wish I'd I'd like to look into this more, but it's almost like Australia is a state. Of the union, <laughs> okay. and record companies are like, uh, yeah. you you're allowed to do whatever you want for a while and incubate, and like you probably are going to sell a few records down there, so we're going to let you keep doing it. Yeah. You're not ready for America yet, but you know what? Like, do your whatever the like. The other band I keep thinking of that remind this this album and their next album reminds me of a lot is Hoodoo Guru. Okay, heyday, yeah. And yeah, you're yeah. you're listening to those records, you're going, how did they get away with this on a major fucking label? Because you're right, Seance sounds like a band, not like right right yet. And then they're going to be right soon when they come to L.A. and get made right. But to be fair, like. Steve, but they're allowed to do whatever the fuck they want. Steve, this album is them doing what they want. Right. Steve Kilby, up until today, he's 64, 67, something like that. He's made 14 solo albums to this point. The guy Damn. has been prolific as hell. So my guess is like the band couldn't figure out. He's probably tossing songs out left and right. Try this one. Try this one. Try this one. Try this one. But, they, but you can hear them learning too, Henry. Like yeah. on this record, um, I think we talked about this a little bit before. It almost sounds like they didn't have anybody around to say no. And when they got to L.A., some mm-hmm. people were like, you know, that sounds good, but that second part, no. Let's well, so do this. Right. They finally put, had a little money put, put to them, and, and so the record company could kind of put the screws to them and say, here's what a real producer is going to do. Yeah, and I, I guess you, you are much more of a church fan than me, so I didn't yeah. really come to them until Under the Milky Way, and, and I love that record. And, but I, it, it astonished me. How on these early records, he he's not the same singer. It's no. like it's like they found this singer in him when they got to record four. They or five. sent him to music to to vocal lessons. Really, like yes. the actual vocal lessons. Yes, they sent him to vocal lessons for Under the Milky Way, and he learned how to sing. Well, it's not even. It's like the quality of the way he sings. He's yes. got this cool, laid back feel on that that he doesn't on these records. And that's and, when they became that. Right, they became, and then they found their voice. Good on them. Good on them. Um, usually, usually we we think big record companies ruin bands, yeah, but the best the, the the way that I would describe Seance is it's beautifully undisciplined. 
It is. It's in, interesting and fun to listen to. Yeah. And um but is it is it is it is it uh if you've only got room for one church if album. If you've only got room for one church album, this ain't the one, man. Right. Um, no, definitely not. Because in typical fashion, you know, like Chris introduced me to Starfish back what probably 1989, 90. Right. And I, I immediately swallow that and they go right back to the beginning, right? I just trying to swallow everything they've got. But anyway, um, if you're interested in the church, this is a, a good record to listen to, but it shouldn't be the first one. No. And I'm, I, I'm, I so much like the ones that are coming later. I'm, I'm going to give this a thumbs down, but not like, because I really dislike it. Totally what about you, Megan? It. Totally get it. I'd give it a thumbs up. Not my favorite, but... But worth a listen. Yes. Cool. Excellent. So the album that I will be doing the intro to, interesting choice for me, it's uh, by the Talking Heads, Speaking in Tongues, and then, of course, the biggest hit probably for them, uh, Burning Down the House. Well, Psycho Killer is probably considered a bigger hit, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think you're. I think you're dead on at the time. Probably burning down the house, but now overall, yes, yeah, Psycho Killer gets played more. I think you're right. But we're going to play a part of "Girlfriend Is Better," which is a better choice. I hey, think. I agree. This is the album that I'm adding to the canon. I don't know what it is. I've always had a chip on my shoulder. I, I feel like Talking Heads always get a short. Um, I don't know if it's because David Burns weird. I don't Wait, know. If, what you know? I so I, I feel like they could. They are in the. They are to me. They are in the running. They're in the conversation with Prince and Madonna and Phil Collins for being the best and David Bowie the best thing. Of the eighties, or Bruce Springsteen too. So, like I, they're right there. I asked David yeah. Byrne, right? I asked him. I said, "How are you going to follow up the Eno produced, critically hailed record, Remain in Light?" And also, David Byrne, why wasn't My Life in the Bush of Ghosts a Talking Heads album? Why is that? And he said to me, he said, first thing I'm going to do is get rid of Eno, right? Because his recording techniques kind of keep me from being the control freak." 
I need to be. But then I said to him, I said, you know, Tina Weymouth thinks you're a fucking asshole for all that control freaky shit you do. Yeah. And I think I read one time, man, that didn't you th- didn't you say that you thought you were undiagnosed, like on the spectrum? Is that why your work with the Talking Heads was so damn compelling? Is that what it is? He said, "Fuck you, Henry." Speaking, in, he said the Speaking in Tongues album was our commercial breakthrough. I dated Annie Clark and, while and, I was in my sixties, and not only is that yeah, which that, that's impressive, <laughs> especially since she's I think a lesbian, and also. I want to say a few things in regards to that because Henry's yeah. made up story there is such bullshit. <laughs> um, this album also led to the greatest, possibly the greatest live concert film of all time, which was the Stop Making Sense. Damn, that was. Which is from the tour yeah, yeah. for this album. That was pretty. Good. Where they ended up becoming like a 12 piece band, like yeah. an actual 12 piece band. These songs. By the way, Eno not producing had nothing to do with David Byrne. It had everything to do with Tina Weymouth and Chris Franz because they were so jealous that uh, he had made My Life in the Bush Ghosts with Eno. You think that was why? Definitely why. He wanted to make that. He didn't want to make another record with the Talking Heads. He wanted to make records with them as the backing band. Mm. And Eno wanted uh, credit. The next album Eno produced, he said he wanted credit as a member of the band. And the two of them said, fuck that at all. Really? David Byrne was always fine with like Eno and that stuff, but you're right on this. He did want to make a commercial record. The interesting thing is this record, if you listen to it, is full of all these African. Uh, they're like they're like doing Paul Simon stuff. Well, you know, for but, ye- a couple years. But before the great Paul thing Simon. about it was he got to be goofy again on this record after like a couple rec- remain in light and what was in before was it stop making sense? fear of music. Fear of music, which are amazing. As yeah, well. but he was less. He he got to be less goofy on those, right? If you listen to this album, like, and and this is the thing I think they get a bad rap for anyway. Yeah. If you listen to it intently, you're like, holy shit, these fucking people are amazing. Like, what what the fuck are they doing? But if you just listen to it as background music, it just sounds like nerdy white people. I was amazed at how good a bass player Tina Weymouth was. Jesus, she was. Oh yeah, she's know, like she's just amazing. God Almighty. Really- yeah. And the all the polyrhythmic stuff they were doing on this record was like untouchable. You know, it wasn't even like, you know, sometimes you can point at people and say, oh, you're just a pretender. You're just trying, you know, you're a try hard pretender. These guys were like the real deal. Man. They were, but I think, don't, don't, I, I again, I got a chip on my shoulder. I feel like they always get this rap as being a joke band because he wore the That's big, the he big, the big shoulder right. thing and he did the, you know, the thing with his arm, like, right. and everybody's like, oh, they're a joke band. And you're like, listen to them play and you're like, that is not a joke band. That is, that band will kick your fucking favorite band's ass. And uh, I'm not sure that this is my favorite one. Like I think "Remain in Light" is still "Remain in Light" my, is my favorite, my favorite as well. But this is the big. I could yeah. see why this one got to be like a commercial breakthrough, right? You know? For our listeners that don't know about like uh, sarcasm and irony, he did not talk to David. Byrne. <laughs> if he had landed an interview with David Byrne, we would have played it. Yeah, uh, I love it. I love those stories. <laughs> the made-up ones in your Thanks, head, David Byrne. But yeah, lo- uh, I loved it. So, uh, I mean, it's kind of an unassailable. 
It's one of those where it's like I, I, it's a thumbs up. It's on the canon and all that, but it's not my favorite album. Yeah. You like you know. It's hard to be, you can't be critical of it. How at can all. you talk bad about 1999, but yeah. it's not my favorite Prince record? <laughs> yeah, and that's why I have, I have to come up with a fun story about what might have happened. Yeah, right. Have no fucking idea. <laughs> definitely, definitely a thumbs, thumbs up. up. Great album, I yes. think. Obviously. Yeah, and if it, and if you need an intro to talking to to Talking Heads, this would be a good intro because yeah, Remaining Lights a little bit more hard, and Fear yeah. of Music is really like for aficionados. It's more even more hardcore. Okay, Henry, take us to the next one. Uh, the next one we're going to consider is a band called Midnight Star. I believe this is their third, correct me if I'm wrong. Their third. third. Their third album is called No Parking on the Dance Floor. We're going to pay, play part of the big hit called Reconsolid. bus sounded like on the way to school for me in fifth grade <laughs> my bus driver had a big old jam box that took its own seat and i didn't know i didn't know how much midnight star i knew until um until i went back and listened because i, 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 I didn't bet, i didn't even know freakazoid was i bet when midnight. that song went my whistle came on you went oh my god I, all that. of them every one of them i was like holy shit i didn't I, oh so i have to be, i i got midnight star mixed up with another band called um help star. us out megan what's the other star that's like a similar group yes. well sort of similar but it was like an 80s band with star in it I don't know. It's like, it sounded blanking. more like Atlantic Star. Atlantic Star. Thank With two you. R's. Atlantic uh, Star. So I was going into this going, I'm going to have to listen to Atlantic Star. This is not going to be good. And then every song on here, I was like, holy shit. Uh, so Atlantic Star, did anybody notice that all the songs were about fucking? Uh, this is Midnight Star, by the way, not Atlantic Star. Yes. That's what I meant. Yeah, I know. Did you I did. say? Yeah, you said Atlantic Star again. It's, it's, it, you can't Midnight, help it. I know. Midnight Star, all the songs are about fucking. Oh yeah, basically. I mean, Freakazoid. Freakazoid is a as a girl singing about how she's a, a freak in bed and she's gonna rock your world, but you gotta get her high as fuck first. Yeah, I thought that I, to wind her up. I heard there was a lot of. I felt like there was a lot of cocaine. <laughs> yeah. on this album. The video oh, for the God. song has got a bunch of shirtless dudes like grinding all over. Wet my whistle. What the fuck you think that means? You had to wet your whistle. You know, goddamn right what you're doing. Your mouth gets dry on the dance floor, Henry. Is there anything <laughs> wrong with this, Henry? Say what? Is there anything wrong with that, though, Henry? No, not at all. But just like, you know? I, but for me, it comes off like like you're trying to be the Rick James edgy stuff, but you're just not quite doing it. You know? I'll tell you what it is. To me, though, I thought it was interesting. It sounds like if Prince, 
his sort of new wavy pop sound does Rick James. Right. Which I really liked. I mean, I I went into this really thinking I was not going to like this, and I was like, I know every one of these songs. The production was it. tight. I was also very pleasantly surprised by this, to I be was. honest, it's especially a, based on the cover art of the album. Yes, yes, <laughs> this right? is solid use of like eighties tech. These guys had they were a funk band, you know, from the seventies that were trying to translate the eighties again. Um, they'd been struggling before this, but I guess that you know this song, this record's got like electro funk and like. So, Megan, I, I'm assuming that's just how they showed up at the studio every night. That's just a regular like Tuesday night with recording. The yeah, that, that was just. Oh, <laughs> I know. I didn't really. I kind of just thought that it was going to be shitty, generic, sort of disco. But yeah. then once I listened to it, and I mean, yeah, every song is basically about fucking. Yeah, yeah, but. but it's fun. Yeah, yeah, and it is. It is very like this is what '80s and cocaine. No, I, like. I agree with you. Nothing, like. nothing here is awful. Yes. <laughs> no, and and nothing here. Th- if you really want to feel like what it felt like to be in the eighties, this is one of those albums where you're like, this sounds like fucking. This is truly yes. what the eighties. The song like. "Slow yeah. Jam" is exactly but, what it is. A slow jam, you know. But these are the kind of songs like you would see hear kids singing a little bit in the hallway, and you always knew it, and it, and it was like one of those cool, like you know. Uh, things to do, and you'd be like, I don't know who wrote that. I don't know. I don't even know where I heard it. But you know, it's it's like ubiquitous. It's like in your head. And don't forget the song "No Parking on the Dance Floor." How could you forget that one? <laughs> I mean, had this this song had this album had at least three solid like hits, kind of. Oh yeah, or at least memorable hits. It also had like the, the whole thing though has that like it, it it was in the air as like dance music so like mm-hmm. you I was just shocked how much of it I knew not, not just because the hits weren't really on the radio like not really no but, it was but just, they were socialized hits at school I think well and also if you if you if you like as a kid and in the eighties for us it was big mm-hmm. to have a a jam box right mm-hmm. but you couldn't have a jam box if you didn't have some of this kind of music you couldn't be like playing sticks on your fucking jam box, right? You had to have something that you thought was like moderately like breakdance-ish. That's right. Right? Right? So this was as close as we got. So it was this and Run DMC for us. So, so we just had a world where I just kind of gave a thumbs down to Seance, but I'm going to give a thumbs up to Midnight Star. I know, it's a weird but, I mean, world. Okay, right? okay. Yeah, um, but you got to go with what with your gut. You got to go with your emotions on it. And like, I'm sorry, but there's some undeniable tracks on this thing. It's one of those oh, things where, where we did the show for, and like you, you listen to this, and you're like, man, I can't wait to tell people. You probably haven't heard this, and I didn't know I'd heard it. Go back and listen. You, it, it's fun. You'll I was like folding it. clothes, and like my mouth fell open. Like this song's all about. <laughs> this is a gem. Yeah, it is. It's one of those. It's like the, it's one of the fun reasons to do the show. It's like. Yeah. All right. Thumbs up for no parking on the dance floor for me, too. And now we'll have to cover Atlantic Star just to see how much different it is and how much we hate it. And, and that's no other star but Midnight Star. That's Star with two R. As far as I'm concerned. All righty. We've made it to the last record of the episode. It's by Donna Summer, who definitely works hard for the money. Uh, uh-huh. it's, mm-hmm, it's an all-music four and a half, and the hit song was called, believe it or not, She Works Hard for the Money. <laughs> This is a title track. And guess what I'm going to play? I wonder. She works hard for the money. She works hard for the money. 
without words or without explanation, if you want to know what the 70s were like and you want to know what the 80s were like, just in general, play one of her 70s songs and play this song. That's the whole difference in the whole culture at the time. This thing is like angular and fucking Mm -hmm. clean and like everything's fucking plastic. It's like plastic disco, right? Everything's perfect. But there's a whole story about this. There's a whole industry. Well, I know. I'm not saying it's better, but I'm just saying it's it's fucking eighties, right? This is goddamn. Yeah, yeah, very much. So the guy that produced this, his name was Michael Martian. Same guy that did Christopher Cross's song Sailing. What? Yep. I shit you not. She met him at the Grammys one time and like Wanted to hire him because she'd been having all this trouble with record companies. Like she did The Wanderer with uh, Giorgio Moroder, and then they were working on the follow. And it didn't do that great. It didn't sell much. It was she was working on the follow up to that with Moroder, and then David Geffen walked into the session and said the work sucked and canceled the whole project, and she, she was left without her. Um, uh, they wanted to make her work with uh, Quincy Jones, so Quincy Jones did the Donna Summers record. On a summer record with her, and after that, she uh, ended up like being without a record company apparently, and so was searching for a hit. Found Michael O'Martian, and he made her a hit. Man, like it or not, yeah, this, this is what it was. I, I yeah, and I don't. I, I hate to. I hate to criticize it because the fucking guy was right. This is yes. what the '80s sounds like, right? I. I Henry went back and found, we found the album that she was trying to make that Dave and Geff, David Geffen squashed, mm-hmm. which they've mm-hmm. always called the Donna Summer Lost record because it came out 16 years later, no fanfare, no nothing. It just came out. It's called, Great. I'm yeah, it's called I'm a Rainbow. And for our 2021 sensibilities, first of all, how the fuck would anybody tell you to stop working with Giorgio Moroder? Like, yes. fuck you. <laughs> yeah. And then you listen to I'm a Rainbow and you listen to Works Hard for the Money and you're like, I'll take I'm a Rainbow, please, uh, all day yeah. for 100. But, but at the time, I mean, her sound right there, that is the fucking 80s, right? I don't know that I'm a Rainbow would have done anything. Like, Geffen, as big a dick, apparently, as David Geffen was, and it sounds like there was a bit of um, Mm -hmm. misogyny where he was like, uh, no, fuck you, Donna, we're not making the record you want to make, so we're going to make a record with Quincy Jones, and you don't get to say in the matter. Um, For all that shit, I think he was kind of right, in a way. When it comes to money... Yeah, and when it it's comes to that way, not what really, would sell? He basically said, "Oh, we're going to go get Quincy Jones, uh, the guy that did the thing with um, Michael Jackson." The album was okay; it didn't work; it didn't make her the star that they were hoping to have. And she get she kept getting jerked around by Geffen a lot. By the time they actually did do a record with her, they made her pay. They made her produce a piece of shit that sucked. It's just weird that like when you read all this stuff, it's like she's dealing directly with David Geffen, like. Yeah, but she did. But, but here's the thing: they Geffen didn't give her Michael O'Marsh, and she went and did it herself. No, I know, but, but it's like all of her feud is like it reminds me of Kesha and her producer. Oh, yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. what the fuck yeah. is David Geffen so personally involved for? Like he walked in the studio and was like, to just kill the thing. Nothing's yeah. going on. I'm killing this record, and it's like, what are you talking about? One of the reasons that she signed up with this guy was that he was a Christian, and she's always had, you know, she's always, you know, Christian. Jesus was her jam, right? So that this record's got like 
female empowerment and Jesus and missing children on it. It's it's so <laughs> cloying, you know, like it's it's That's a great synopsis, I feel. Yeah, and I didn't know this until researching for this record. Like as a disco, like she's known for disco and the disco queen and that sort of stuff. So I would have thought she was real open to LGBTQ stuff and apparently she got into a big controversy uh, in 2017 over some comments she made that were anti-LGBTQ because she's such a huge Christian. Uh, yeah. That's her jam, like you were saying. And it, it kind of shocked me because I'm like, how did how did like Giorgio Moroder's, Moroder's queen, like the queen of disco, how is she not into gay culture? Yeah, I don't get it. <laughs> she's like the soundtrack of gay culture. I know. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. <gasps> no, it's so but odd. It's still, but still, this record was very specifically leveled at MTV, it seems. It worked though, man. Worked. I, here's the thing: I, I want to hate this record, but it's like that's it's fucking sounds exactly like the '80s. I get the guy oh. nailed it. The video is like this lady doing hard work, scrubbing the floor in a diner, getting smacked on the ass. Like, oh, let's borrow from nine to five. They had all kinds of ladies dancing in the street. One wearing a construction worker hat, you know, like like the one hard, <laughs> but. The video reminded me a lot. Her video reminded me a lot of um, the Pat Benatar videos from yes, the time. But they all did that, right? Mm-hmm. The, the dance. There would be some sort of like, yeah, working some, girl thing going on and then a dance uh, dance off at the end. Yeah. Uh, As one does. Of course. Know, but anyway, this record sounds like she had just been on the, the she had one song, I think it was called Rebel on the, on the Flashdance soundtrack, right? And so she was able to try to capitalize on that to get this going. And um, well, that was my other question to you guys. After listening to this and then uh, revisiting Flashdance, do you not think the Irene Cara song sounds very much in like in the same vein as this? Yeah, I could easily hear her singing that. It's almost like I wonder if that same guy produced both. Both things because it it really they really sounded similar to me. I never really gave Donna Summer much of a listen until I I was forced to listen to it here, and I'm forced to tell you that uh, she had a, a remarkably powerful voice. Yeah, and some of her did. records from the '70s with Moroder are very good. And mm-hmm. um, oh and, man, I, that's all I knew her as as a kid because my parents yeah. loved disco, so like Hot Stuff and Bad Girls. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, MacArthur Park, which I hated because I was a ballad, but like all that 70s stuff. It, it's weird as a kid. It went, by the time we, she did Works Hard for the Money, I thought she was old well, and over the hill. You, I was go, like, Ugh. you go back to that song, I Feel Love, and you're like, oh my God, this is an art track. You know, Moroder was, you know, I, 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 you, you say effect. those tracks and then you're like, how did she not know that gay people, I know. <laughs> what is going I on? Know. Okay, so num- number one for our fans for, uh, the inside baseball tip of yep. the week. You're not going to get this anywhere else. Go find I'm a Rainbow and listen to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to dig it. But I am torn, man. I I don't want to like this record, but like, and I like the disco Marauder stuff better. But if you don't like this record, you're basically saying you fucking hate the 80s. Nah, it's just some. She was credible. Donna Summer was credible on some things. This is just not a part of the 80s that I really thought was great. You know, Megan, what do you think? I mean, I'm gonna have to give it a thumbs down. Mm. Like I, I don't hate it. It's just I like I, I just prefer her other stuff so much I, that I, this I feel pales in comparison. I'm with That's you guys. Reason. 
Yep, I, I hear that and I, I appreciate that argument, but that song right there is the fucking 80s. Fair. Uh, I mean, why does it have to be the 80s? I don't get it. It sounds like it sounds like every Eddie Murphy movie from that time. It sounds like Flashdance. Okay, it sounds like Ghostbusters. It yeah, sounds like yeah. every culture, pop culture reference you want to make from 1983 sounds like that. There are other ones, though. <laughs> it's so of its time is what i'm saying yeah. like it's 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 weird to like again i don't think it's great art or anything like that and i i think she has better stuff i don't even think i liked it when it came out but but if you're like nostalgic for the 80s then midnight star and donna summer sound like fucking 1983 man throwing the summer of 83 throwing it down i'm gonna give it a thumbs fucking up her uh do you, it I'm doing it. I'm doing it. Okay, so let's. Uh, that's it. I'll give it a thumbs up. You guys both hate it, and you both hate the '80s and Donna. So thumbs down for me. You guys host an '80s show, and you dislike the '80s. Great. Dislike this album. All right. Uh, I'm going to start my own podcast called "The '80s Are Awesome." <laughs> All of you fans that want to join me over there. These two are going to start a disco podcast. Where we're going to listen to Aztec Camera again. <laughs> what? Never. All right. So my pick of the episode has to be Speaking in Tongues by the Talking Heads because I think it's one of the five best albums from, from the 80s. Well chosen. I think of the five, the clear standout leader is Texas Flood by Stevie Ray Vaughan. Wow. Um, I'm picking Midnight Star. Yes. I love it. I love it. <laughs> All across the map this time. Nobody's it throwing was. down on the same record. And can we all say this? This was a good episode. There's yeah. a lot of good records on here. All over yeah. the map, too. Like different mm-hmm. kinds and styles. and Yeah, yeah way different. Like, def- like, I was wondering since the last episode, there were so many like records that we enjoyed. And this one, there were ones I didn't necessarily think I was going to enjoy, but I ended up actually enjoying. I I agree with you. Yeah. It's like, those are the fun episodes too. When you're like, Oh, I don't know that I'm going to like this covering this. And you're like, yeah, that's a lot of fun. It's also weird. If you think about it, I know this is not the billboard top 100 or whatever, but it is weird to think about a world where these five records all came out the same month and were in your consciousness. Like I was aware of all of these records, maybe not the seance, but I was aware of all of these records at the time. And it didn't seem weird to me when I got up in the morning, like, like Texas flood and the Donna summer record are very different albums. True. But you probably didn't own the Donna summer. You just, well, it was just on everywhere. It was just on everywhere. Yeah. When, When you turned on the TV, there it was. Sure. Or, very commercial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Awesome. Well, thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers, people like Ken, who help us keep the lights on. If you like the records we're choosing, please consider subscribing to the pod, and you'll have our newest content downloaded to your device. Please review us on your favorite podcast app. You can chat us up, ask us questions, even on Twitter at 80s Exposed, or email us like many of you do at 80s Music Exposed at gmail.com. You can hit us up on social media. If you look at the show notes, you can leave us a voicemail on SpeakPipe. Uh, Chris, what is your Twitter handle? So, SpeakPipe. Yes. Can you tell if anyone's looked at SpeakPipe? 
Yes, we had one message on SpeakPipe that I haven't that I haven't played for you guys, but it's there. I don't even I don't even know what SpeakPipe is. That's amazing. Is that it's, like it, people can call people? It's a link they can click on in the show notes and leave us a voice message. In my mind, it's like that game you played as a kid when you had the can in your ear and a string attached to it, and <laughs> right. the other guy, and he's like, "I'm going to hit you up on SpeakPipe tonight." Right? Hey, dude, can you hear me? Not that though, right? Not that. It's not that. Okay. All right, uh, my Twitter handle is at T-C-I Duke. And mine is at Hank G. Megan's on Instagram. What's your handle there? It is Bastards of Young 92. I want to thank everyone who listens to our show and uh, helps uh, keep the uh, 80s flame burning. Is that a good one? I think that's good because, I mean, somebody's got to keep it burning. You too. Oh, stop. Gonna just like let the 80s rot and go back to disco. Chris, Megan, guess what? I'm not guessing anymore. I made you a (laughs) mixtape. (laughs) 